Let's pray together the prayer for illumination found in the bulletin, believing that we need the Lord to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts, and to do with God's word what he wants us to do with it. That's true for the one who speaks and the one who listens. We need the Lord's help. So let's pray for it now. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we hope to wrap up a, a lengthy study that we began uh, the first Sunday of this year, almost eight months ago. Uh, so we're, we're to that point where we are uh, considering the last things and specifically the last judgment. And so we're going to be listening in just a moment from uh, the testimony of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which you can find in the back of the songbook on page 939, if you'd like to follow along, 939. First, listen to God's word from Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus tells a story about uh, a group of people who are waiting for an event of significance, a wedding feast in this case, and some were prepared for the start of this event, which uh, they did not know the time that it would begin, but some were prepared, they were ready, and some tragically were not prepared. And the difference is uh, decisive. Some were let in and some were not. And so this is a story that tells us also to be prepared for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at a time in which we know not. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Amen. We trust that we can receive help also from those who have gone before us and have pondered these things. And so I'll be reading the 
uh, last three articles of the Westminster Confession of Faith from chapter 33 on page 939 in the songbook. Of the last judgment, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or or evil. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of life and refreshing which comes from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall come a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Well, we're studying then, not just this, this morning, but also last week, what we sometimes call uh, the last things or the study of the end times or eschatology. And as you may know, studies on the end times can sometimes be an exercise in speculation. How do I predict this will line up with that historical event and so on? And the guessing game uh, goes on. And we understand that temptation, the prospect of looking into a crystal ball is alluring. We want uh, to know just what the future is going to be like. And many foolish people have even tried to predict the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes multiple times, and all of them were faulty. But this is not how we want to approach a study of the end times by way of speculation. In fact, an eschatology that's driven by curiosity is a sure sign of spiritual immaturity, if not total spiritual disinterest. Serious Christians understand the seriousness of the matter. We're not just speculating. We're not just curious. These things have bearing on our eternal destiny, the end times 
and its theology is vital to the eternal state of our souls and our flourishing here and now. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, which, in which Paul puts it so d- decisively, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Where is the place then for speculation or mere curiosity about these things. We will stand before God. And so it's a very sobering subject. At the same time, studying the end times can be helpful provided that we ask the right kinds of questions, not how does this historical event line up with this text or you know what can we expect to happen next month or so we have to ask the right kinds of questions and we have to listen to scripture's answers with a firm resolve to obey to obey not simply to have our curiosity answered but to obey the word of the lord now we know that not uh, that, that all christians do not agree on every detail of Uh, the last judgment or eschatology in general, but scripture's basic testimony is plain. And I find it interesting that even the sketch that the confession puts here could hardly be denied by any serious Christian because they don't engage in uh, useless speculations. Just set forth plainly the last judgment. And so we want to consider three aspects of the last judgment as we close this study together, first of all, uh, the reality of the final judgment. The reality. We need to be convinced that this thing is happening. And the final judgment, if we read the Bible and believe it, the final judgment is one of the more, if I could put it this way, obvious doctrines. It is not hidden. It is not mentioned a mere few times. It is obvious. It might be unpopular today, this doctrine, even embarrassing for people who imagine that God is only love or that Jesus doesn't judge, but that doesn't change the fact that it is a pervasive doctrine in the word of God. In fact, no one in the Bible warned about the day of judgment more than Jesus who is also the judge. And so for those who say, well, Jesus doesn't judge, he, he is the judge. And he, more than anyone in scripture, warns about the final judgment. His disciples, of course, fervently f- continued his practice warning about the final judgment. In fact, the book of Hebrews, chapter six, verses one and two, calls eternal judgment an elementary doctrine. This is not even advanced theology. This is not like something that should be left for the experts. It's not something that we will get to if we have opportunity, the writer says. This is basic, fundamental, elementary. Here's how Paul summed it up to his Gentile audience in Athens. You might think if if the apostle Paul spoke a very brief sermon to a Gentile audience who didn't know too much about God and this and that, maybe he wouldn't leave, maybe he'd leave out the final judgment. No, that's actually what he was driving toward. And this is how he put it. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Is Christ raised? 
then he will judge. So this is a this is a, a real doctrine, a certain reality. What does this judgment mean? As we think about the reality of the final judgment, let's reflect on three things that this judgment is uh, is all about. What does it mean for us? First of all, this. Every fallen moral creature will appear before the tribunal of Christ. Every fallen moral creature, fallen angels and fallen people. Why? Because God's moral creatures are stewards. We've been made by God brought into his world, entrusted with responsibilities, which means that one day we will have to give account, just as the stewards in Jesus' parable. After we are tested in this life, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, all of us will be judged. After death, comes judgment. You have a life in which you are given responsibilities and opportunities. It's a testing time. And at the end of that, when you die, you'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll appear before the tribunal of Christ. Fallen angels too, God will bring to judgment from their present place of gloomy darkness, as Second Peter 2 verse 4 says. The apostle John was privileged to give, uh, to be given a, a, a terrifying glimpse into these last days and these last events and seeing in advance this scene on the great day, he recorded these words. He said, I saw the dead, great and small. You might think then maybe old and young, the, the important ones and the lesser known ones, the kings and the laborers, the servants. I saw them all standing before the throne. Paul says this in Romans 14, 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat. So that's the first part, I think, of the reality of the judgment. We will stand before Christ. Number two, you might, you might ask more specifically, well, what will we be standing there for? And the second thing is this, every fallen moral creature will give account of their life. So we'll be summoned before the throne as stewards and then give account. Jesus could not be clearer than he was in Matthew 12, verse 36. He says, I tell you. So he's like saying, listen up. Let me tell you something important. Pay attention. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What Jesus is doing is saying, look, if, if you have to give account for every careless word, then, then, of course, your whole life will be open to scrutiny. When John saw the dead surrounding the throne in Revelation 20, he also saw, as he says, books that were opened. These books symbolize the record of every thought, word, and action 
of, of people, of moral creatures, even every secret thing, as, as Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says. Paul says the same in Romans 2, 16. So imagine every single aspect of your life being caught on surveillance, being recorded in a book, and will come to light, will be presented at this great judgment. The point here, friends, is that we cannot hide from God not now, and certainly not on the last day. We can hide from each other. We can try to silence our consciences, but we cannot hide from God. Hebrews 4.13 says this, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Children, your mom and dad, they miss a lot of what you do. And you say, well, that's good. Your boss misses a lot, your manager, your overseers. We, we are not totally, perfectly accountable to one another here in this world. God never misses a thing. And so we will stand before him to give account of every thought, word, and action. And then number three, every fallen moral creature will be judged according to their actions. So we're summoned, we give account, and then comes the judgment. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 puts it this way, the coming Lord will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God or, of course, if need be, his condemnation from God, either his reward or his penalty. And Jesus himself says this at the end of Matthew 25, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. The final judgment is coming. We don't know when, God does, and it is coming. It is a law that cannot be changed, more certain than the law of the Medes and the Persians, which we read in the Bible, couldn't be, this thing cannot be changed. It's set, it is, it is real, and it pertains to you and to me. But why has God planned the judgment, we might ask? Well, let's consider second, the reason for the final judgment. Why? Why is this coming? Why will this happen? And, and in brief, the final judgment is, is coming in order to showcase God's mercy and justice in a way that will be undeniable. His mercy and his justice. Now, Prior to that day, people criticized God as being either unjust or unmerciful. People might say to God, how can he condemn ignorant people or is sin really so bad? But when every act is revealed on that great day, God himself will be fully justified for his judgment against creatures, whether it be a judgment of mercy or a judgment of 
uh, of, of punishment, of penalty. God will be justified. It's really then uh, a, a revealing of, of the perfection of God in all of his decisions. And, and so this is true in two ways. First, God will, will manifest or make plain, make known, reveal the glory of his mercy. If you think that you understand something of the mercy of God now, it will be more, most fully revealed on that last day. God's children will hear him say, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Well done. We will know that we have not done nearly as well as God's welcome warrants. The reward on that day will be obviously far too much for the work performed. God's mercy will be magnified. Remember the, the uh, believers in, in Jesus' parable, when, when Jesus said, you, you gave me something to drink and something to eat, and, and so well done, enter into the, the reward that the Lord has prepared for you. And the people said, we, we don't think we've done that. We don't think we've deserved this reward. And that's the point for the elect on the day of judgment. To, to, and, and for, of course, everyone else who's, who's watching, this is undeserved. No one then will say on their way into heaven on the last day from Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, my power and the might of my hand have given me this wealth. No one will say that. No one will be able to say that. Instead, we will struggle to make sense of God's congratulations. <laughs> this isn't deserved. I don't deserve it. I haven't done well. But, but that's the point. God will publicly acquit justified sinners not as a demonstration of their goodness, but as a grand demonstration of his grace and mercy. God's kindness will be exalted in the elect on the day of judgment. But then also God will manifest the glory of his justice. God will publicly condemn unrepentant sinners in order, as Paul says in Romans 9 verse 22, to show his wrath. Wrath done rightly is upright, right? There is sinful wrath, but there's holy wrath, and God will justify himself, his holy wrath on that day to make known his power, as Paul says. Or as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, God considers it just to repay sinners with affliction. It is just, it is right. On the day of judgment, God will honor the warning that he gave to the human race at the beginning where he says uh, to our forefathers, uh, our, our forefather and foremother, if you reject my holy will, you will surely die. God publicized that, that uh, warning to our first parents so it could be passed down through the generations so that everybody could know a day of judgment, a day of reckoning is coming and God has preserved that record in his holy word so that there could be no doubt about it. It's a just thing for God to repay sinners with affliction. Paul says this 
as, as, uh, in a different way in Acts chapter 17 as he's speaking to the Athenians in which he will tell them that God is going to judge all, including them. He says this, that God made his people that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And if anybody would say, would say, well, that's impossible. We don't even know how to get to him. Paul says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And yet, despite abundant evidence of his power and goodness, even evident in nature, unbelievers respond like hard-hearted Pharaoh when he said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. That is the tragic response of unbelief. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know him. I don't owe him anything. I will not obey him. And so it is a just thing for God to return such disobedience by way of punishment. The judgment of the wicked and disobedient is well deserved. God will manifest his judgment, his mercy. And, and so God, as Isaiah 45 tells us, he's, he's now calling to the ends of the earth, turn to me and be saved. Turn to me and be saved. And yet as the text goes on in Isaiah 45 to say this, but, but even when his people refuse, his word will not return to him void. So God says, turn to me and be saved. And, and yet he says, to me, every knee shall bow. Your knee can bow in salvation or in damnation, but every knee will bow. This is the ultimate purpose of the final judgment, to manifest God's glory before all moral creatures. Now, obviously, the importance of this real event, of this truth, is staggering. And so we want to close with this question. What, what does this say to me now, right now? How should I respond? What is the final judgment? How is it relevant to me? So what is, thirdly, the relevance of the final judgment? And Revelation gives us a, uh, a preview or a, a summary, you might say, of this idea of the relevance of the final judgment. Revelation pictures in chapter 14, verse 7, an angel flying over the earth, preaching the gospel and interpreting the importance of pending judgment. And the angel says this, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. So what is the relevance of the final judgment? Fear God, give him glory. If we believe in a day of reckoning, then how we live right now will change because the day of reckoning has to do with what we have done in the body whether good or bad right now. And there, there are three ways at least that the reality of the final judgment should impinge upon our consciences and change our lives. These are highlighted 
in the final paragraph of the Westminster Confession of Faith first, the certainty of judgment should turn us from sin. The certainty of judgment should turn us from sin. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says this, that people who go on sinning, especially after receiving knowledge of the truth, should have a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. To go on sinning is, is, is disastrous for people who know the truth. Peter asks this question. It's a question that really has the answer right in the question, but he says this in 2 Peter 3, verse 11, that he says, if you know that God will judge you, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If you know that God will judge you, what kind of people ought you to be in holiness and just and uh, godliness? And here's his explicit answer in verse 14, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace. Be at peace with God. Be at peace with your neighbor. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Resist sin. Remind your soul every day the Lord will judge every action. Everything that I've done will be exposed. What kind of person should I be then in holiness and godliness? I should be diligent in my resistance of sin. I must resist moral complacency. It's easy to become complacent, is it? Sort of roll along through life and try to be decent enough so that you don't uh, arouse uh, too much opposition from godly people. But we must not simply strive for accountability among our peers. Our peers aren't the standard of godliness. God is. We must renounce sinful actions, words, and even thoughts. How are you stewarding your life with regard to sin? Renounce it. The certainty of judgment should turn us from sin. Second, the mercy in judgment should console the elect. To to, uh, sort of summarize what Scripture says to God's people, Believing people about how they should feel about the judgment, we could say this, for the Christian, the final judgment doesn't have to be scary. In fact, it should be desirable. Listen to Jesus. In John 5, truly, truly. Now, Jesus says, truly, truly. This this really is true. He says it twice. Listen up. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's a a present reality. He does not come into judgment. Now, to be clear, uh, the King James does, I think, a better job of that by saying, um, does not come into judgment, meaning condemnation. We will all come into judgment. We all come to the judgment. But if if we're trusting Christ, we will not come into condemnation. But, Jesus goes on, has passed from death to life. It's already happened. In a sense, the judgment has already taken place because it has taken place at Calvary. The judgment for you, if you're trusting in Jesus, was leveled 
fully against your Savior. And so you don't have to fear the judgment. You've passed from death to life. And so for believers, the final judgment is in fact the open door to that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord, as the confession puts it. That's the open door to everything that we've been yearning for. If you have come to know God's love freely given by grace in Jesus, you can actually have confidence for the day of judgment, as John says in 1 John 4, 17. Confidence. Not in yourself, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which covers your sins. The mercy and judgment should console the elect. And then finally, the uh, third, the unknown moment of judgment should make us all watchful. It's unknown. We, we, you know, we don't know. We don't know when the day, of, so we have to watch. And understand this, watchfulness requires more than keeping an open eye to the Lord's return. It requires more than standing in an open field watching to see if Jesus is coming now. This is Paul's warning against the Thessalonians. Your watchfulness is not good. You're sort of just standing there waiting around. Watchful means get to work. Literally, of course, in the Thessalonians case, you actually have to get jobs. You have to get to work. You have to be faithful in, in everything that you do. We'll consider those kinds of themes in our evening uh, sermon and, and the series that we're starting this evening. Um, but but there's, a, there's action here. We must be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's what the wise virgins were prepared to say to the master who was calling them to this banquet. Come, come right now. We're ready. We're prepared. Jesus says to us, as he says to them in Luke 12, 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. When I hear that phrase, stay dressed for action, I think of the Passover. The Lord said to the Jewish people, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And, and, and it's going to come in a moment that you don't know. And so keep your, keep your clothes on. Don't, don't put your pajamas on to go to bed because in the middle of the night, you might be marching out toward, toward the promised land. Keep your clothes. Stay dressed for action. And so like the Israelites waiting for the call to march out of Egypt on their way to the promised land, be prepared through honorable living at every moment of your life to hear the shout of the angels and go to meet your God. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, just ruler of the nations, we call upon you asking that you would Make so in us what Scripture says we must be in order to stand before your judgment. We turn from our sins. We renounce them. We hate what we are by sin. And we embrace what your gospel says, that in Christ we are new creatures, well-suited in the righteousness of our Savior to not only be protected from wrath on the day of judgment, 
but to be told, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the reward of your master. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly.